Chapter 15 of Wandle the Invader. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Harrington. Wandle the Invader by Ray Cummings. Chapter 15. This will be the place to land, Greg Haljan. We were drifting down upon a barren region of naked crags, dark, frowning rock masses, broken and tumbled, as though by some great cataclysm of nature. Mountains upon the moon could not be more desolate of aspect. We landed on the rocks. The heights here had a purple-red sheen from the starlight. We had seen frequent evidence of the storm, and it showed here. Rocks were abnormally piled in drifts. Smooth areas showed where the pebbles, stones, and boulders had been swept away by the wind. Snap and the girls landed beside us. We spoke softly. None of us, not even Molo, knew how far sound would carry in this air. Where is the place from here? Snap demanded. Off there. Molo spoke with docile, guarded softness. He gestured with his head and shoulder. A quarter of a mile away, over these uplands, the broken land went down in a sharp depression. It is there. I think from here we should go on the ground. There is no guard, and I think seldom is anyone on top. If I help you now, if we should wreck the gravity controls, then Wandel will be helpless to navigate space, or to interfere with the rotation of Earth, Mars, and Venus. The Allied worlds might then defeat the Wandel ships in battle. If that happened, perhaps your governments, because of my help here, would forgive what my Starstreak has done. Your piracy, I said. Yes, I am outlawed. I might be reinstated if you would speak the good words for me. Maybe. Maybe even they would reward me. You think so, Greg Haljan? He wanted to be on the winning side. This suited us. Let's try it and see, Molo. I'll speak plenty of good words for you. Now, as we landed on the uplands, he said, you will do best to free my hands. Oh, no, Snap declared. But I am a good fighter. Something unexpected might come. Too good a fighter, I said. We trust you because we have to, Molo, but no more than is necessary. A small recess in the rocks was near us. We put Molo there with his hands bound and with Anita and Venza to guard him. Venza held the electronic gun. She knew how to fire it. The girls crouched in a depression about twenty feet away. They could see Molo plainly. If he moved, a flash of the gun would kill him. He knew that. The girls gazed at us as we were ready to start. Goodbye, Greg. Goodbye, Snap. Good luck. We won't be long. Sit where you are. Snap touched Venza's shoulder for his goodbye. Listen, Venza. Molo has already told us enough to enable us to find the ship. If he tries anything, kill him. Right, she said. We left them. A minute or two, cautiously shoving ourselves along the rocks, and we were crouching there. The cauldron was about two hundred feet broad and fifty feet deep, in a regular circular bowl. The starlight gleamed on it, and there were dots of small artificial light. We saw a group of small metal buildings, very low and squat, like balls mashed down, flattened in a bulging disc shape. Between them were tiny skeleton towers. The towers, twice the height of a man, 
were spread at irregular intervals in a hundred-foot circle, with a group of three or four in the center. There seemed some twenty of them. Taut wires connected their tops, each tower with every other, so that the wires were a lacework above the small disk buildings. The bottoms of the towers were grounded with electrical contacts, and every tower had a ground connection with each other by means of cables. Far to one side, across the bowl from us, was a single globe dwelling with lighted windows. From its ground doorway, a narrow metal catwalk extended like a sidewalk on the ground, winding and branching among the towers and disks. This was the exterior of the Wandle Gravity Station. It lay silent and dark, save for the starlight and the little lights on the towers. No sign of humans. Then we saw movement in the globe dwelling. A man came to the doorway, gazed at the sky, and went back. I whispered, Which is the best entrance to the underground rooms? We saw where, at several points, the winding catwalk terminated in low, dome-like kiosks, giving ingress downward. One was on our slope of the cauldron. That's the one we'll try, Snap murmured. He stopped suddenly. The top of the distant globe dwelling was glowing. A little round patch there was radiant, like a lighted window. A transparent ray was coming from inside. The operators within this globe were observing the sky, training instruments upon it, no doubt. And now we saw in the sky the third of those sword-like beams. It had probably been visible there for some time, but we had not noticed it. That's Venus, I murmured. It seemed so. A blurred star, red in this atmosphere, was close above the horizon. The light beam stood out from it, sweeping up to the zenith. The gravity station here was about to make contact with the Venus beam. We heard a muffled siren, a signal echoing from the subterranean control rooms. The current went into all these wires and towers and twenty-foot ground disks. The hissing and throbbing hum of it was audible. The disks and towers were glowing, red at first, then violet, then that milky opalescent white. The overhead wire aerials were snapping with a myriad of tiny jumping sparks. I saw now that the top of each tower was a grid of radiant wires, a six-foot circular projector with a mirror reflector close beneath it and a series of prisms and lenses just above. It all glowed opalescent in a moment, a dazzling glare. Then the tower tops were swinging. The lights from them had reached the intensity of an upflung beam, and the projectors were swinging to focus the beam inward. The focal point seemed about a thousand feet overhead. All the beams merged there, and guided by the towers directly underneath, a single shaft was standing into the sky. The entire cauldron depression was now a blinding mass of opalescent light. We could see nothing but the milk-white inferno of the glare. It painted the rocks up here on the rim so that we shrank back, shaded our eyes, and gazed into the sky. And from the cauldron, the hum and the hiss of the current, the snapping of sparks, were all lost in a wild electrical screaming turmoil. Overhead, we saw the wandle beam from Venus. Apparently, this control station had two functions— the control of the planet's movements, its axial rotation and its orbital flight, and its ability to apply gravitational force to other celestial bodies. Wandel was controlling her own movements by applying gravity force, attraction, and repulsion to all the celestial starfield, and doubtless also by applying the repulsive beam tangentially against the ether-like rocket streams. In this respect, I realized, the planet was probably operated not unlike one of our familiar spaceships. In effect, it was itself a gigantic globular vehicle. 
Later, I learned that it was thought that Wandel's atmosphere could be highly electronized at will, with a resulting aberration of the natural light ray reflected from her into space. This could have caused the blurring of the image of Wandel when viewed telescopically from other worlds. Again, for a moment of the contact, there was that bursting light in the sky. The contact with the Venus beam lasted a minute or two. Snap and I, on the cauldron rim, were engulfed in the blaze of reflected light and the wild scream of sound. Then presently the turmoil subsided. The contact in the sky was broken. The tow rope of Venus jerked itself away, but on the next Venus rotation it would be attacked again. Another few minutes passed. The little circular depression beneath us was dim and silent as we had first seen it. Figures were moving within the dwelling structure. From several of the underground entrances figures came up, the ten-foot insect-like shapes of workers. Three or four of the brains came bouncing up, moving along the ground catwalk with little leaps. All the figures entered the distant main dwelling house. The contact was over. Probably hardly anyone left down below, Snap whispered. Now's our chance. If we can get into that opening without being seen, I said. Shadows down on the rocks to the left. Damnation, Greg, we can make it in one calculated leap. I'll try it first. I'll get in and wait for you. Right. We each had a gravity cylinder at our belt and a ray gun in our hand. The slope of the depression was dim here, merely starlit. It was a steep, broken, and fairly shadowed descent, fifty feet to the little dome-like kiosk which marked the nearest subterranean entrance. I went down it with a swoop, landed in a heap beside the kiosk, and ducked into it. Instinct made me fear a guard, but reason told me none would be here. There was only the danger of encountering someone coming up. I was at the top of a winding descending passage, a steep terraced floor. There were occasional lights in the ceiling. In a moment, Snap joined me. Got here. I wonder how far down it goes. I gripped him. Snap. No matter what happens, do it with a rush. Keep with me. And if I shout to get out, we go out with a rush. Yes, back to the girls. Use your ray gun and the gravity projector in getting back to them, and get away without me if I fall. Same for you, Greg. We went down the deserted passage. We had had experience in movement on Wandle now. We handled ourselves more deftly. We went down several hundred feet. The passage branched, but there always seemed a main tunnel. It was all deserted. There were distant, dimly lighted, silent rooms. Were these factories of the strange forms of electronic gravity currents Wandel used? Some were in operation. A hum issued from them. Workers moved about. We stopped to consult. The girls and Molo himself had described what we would find. A main route leading to the control room, where the delicate mechanisms which operated all this were centralized, the nerve center of Wandel. It seemed that we were following that main route. A worker came with a swimming leap past us. We dropped into a hollowed shadow at a tunnel intersection, and he went swooping by. Lord, snap, I muttered. That was too close for comfort. Again we advanced. The tunnel turned sharply. Down a short slope, a glowing room was disclosed, with two or three workmen moving within it. The main control room. We could not doubt it. Molo, in his enthusiasm, had once described it clearly to the girls. 
its great skeins of little thread-like wires spread upon the walls, the myriad tiny opalescent disks contacted with the small gray rock surface under the tangled masses of thread wire, the levers and dials banked on the circular tables. They were unmistakable features. There it is, Snap, I whispered in his ear. In that central rack. Those insulated rods, see them? Anita told us they used them to adjust the disks. Watch out for the current. But it's off now, Greg. There's still danger in it, and you'd short circuit somewhere. Keep your hands off. Use the rods. The operators... He got no further. A figure lunged into us from behind. A giant worker. His largest pincer bit into my shoulder. His hollow shout resounded. The operators of the control room came with leaps at us. There was a moment of wild confusion. Light, seemingly almost weightless bodies flapped against us. Arms gripped us, but they were flimsy. The huge body shells cracked gruesomely as we struck with our solid fists. A moment of turmoil passed. No bolts were fired. The shouts were brief down here in the narrow confines of the tunnel. Panting, bruised more by our collisions against the rocks than by our adversaries, we ceased our wild lunges. We did not look at the scattered, broken, and crushed bodies drifting now to the floor. Now, Snap, hurry! Others may come! We lunged into the glowing control room, seized the long, insulated poles from the central rack. They had a grateful feel of weight. I picked one up, jumped with a twenty-foot leap to the wall. The wires came down like cobwebs under my sweeping blows. The little disks knocked off as though they were fungus growth. Sparks flew around us. Shafts of electronic radiance spat out. The wall was hissing over all its length as I ranged up and down it. The tangled, broken threads of wire writhed like living things on the floor, then crumpled, fused, and turned black. I swept that wall segment with frantic haste, lunged around, and started another way. Across the room I saw Snap doing the same. A turmoil of electrical sound was reverberating around us, deafening, and the glare was blinding. A belt shaft shot from the wreckage under my rod. It seared my left arm. My sleeve burned off. The arm hung limp and tingling at my side. I stopped to rub it. In a moment, strength came back to its muscles. Snap was raging like a great heavy bird gone amuck. Through the green fumes of electrical gases which were filling the room, I saw him lunging at the circular tables, overturning them. They cracked like thin, polished stone as they struck the metal floor. I finished with the wall. There was a twenty-foot square piece of metal apparatus, ramified and intricate. I heaved it over upon its side. A thousand little mirrors and prisms dislodged from it came out in a splintering deluge. I was aware of Snap fighting with a brown-shelled figure. Then he was free of it. I saw it mashed and broken at his feet as I dove past, swimming in the smoke to lunge the length of a great fluorescent tube which was still dimly glowing. My pole pried it over. It crashed with a brief puff of light and the rush of an explosion as air went into its vacuum. I found Snap panting beside me, clinging to me in mid-air. The glare was dying around us. The din was lessening. We were choking in the chemical fumes of the released half-burned gases. Turgid darkness was coming to the wrecked room, with little hissing flares spitting through it. Enough, Greg. Listen. Up overhead. A great siren from up there was screaming into the night. Snap panted. Gotta get out of here. Can't breathe. Together we lunged for the tunnel by which we had entered. I stood a moment, gazing back upon the strewn and scattered room. The delicate nerve center of Wandle. 
Heavy green-black gas fumes swirled in it. Darkness and silence closed down. End of chapter 15